All right, we are in Genesis chapter 16 still. And uh, to my surprise, we we are on our third week in this chapter. And I hope we'll get through it today, but there's just been a lot of stuff to talk about there. That, that uh, And you all have had a lot to say about it too as we've gone, and that always slows me down, which is okay. I like that. So... Uh, by way of review, let's just read the chapter again. It's only 16 verses long. And uh, then we'll be looking at the last part of the chapter uh, today. It says, So now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from? Where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man, and he will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live to the east of his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God who sees. For she said, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahoroi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Barad. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Okay? So... Uh, Last a uh, couple of weeks ago, we looked at the first two or three, four verses or so, and then last week we picked up there and and got down to about verse seven. So, uh, what do you remember we've talked about so far? Okay, she remembers I made a promise. I intend to keep that promise, by the way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I intend to keep that promise today. What else? 
awful quiet this morning. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we face, we deal with that all the time. We have <clears throat> constantly before us, we have the alternative of whether or not we're going to walk by faith, whether or not we're going to trust God's promises and God's provision for our life, <clears throat> or whether or not we're going to take things into our own hands and try to control circumstances and control our situation ourselves. We'll see another example of that uh, today in, in uh, Hagar's experience. But what happens when we take things in control ourselves. We mess them up, yeah. They just <clears throat> they tend to just spin out of control, don't they? <clears throat> Excuse me. And that's what happens in this situation. We just see that the more they try to resolve each individual in this scenario tries to resolve their problem, the more things just get out of control. The the uglier they get. And that's <clears throat> boy, that's a testimony of our experience, isn't it? When, when we refuse to trust the Lord uh, and, and we forget to trust the Lord and we, and we look to the ways of the flesh or we look to the ways of the world or we look to our own wisdom, or our own understanding to resolve problems, uh, it seems like inevitably things just get messier and messier and messier. And this whole situation is just going downhill in a hurry. <laughs> it really is going downhill in a hurry. And, and we have the, <clears throat> the animosity on the part of Hagar towards Sarai, and we have Sarai's fear and her, hatred, or her bitterness and her anger and her frustration that she begins to take out on Hagar. And then Hagar, as we saw at the end last week, then she flees from her, from her mistress. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the implications and the consequences of that. And it's just a it's a it's just a situation that spins out of control because because people have just chosen to walk by sight and not by faith, <laughs> and uh, so there's just so many lessons there for us. Yeah. I thought it was kind of interesting dynamic. You would think that when Hagar had the child, that Sarai would have resented her rather than the other way around. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but but that happens with us, doesn't it? That we we receive a grace from God like Hagar did. She received, and we're going to talk about that again today. She receives this this gracious gift from God, and she turns it into pride and into arrogance, and she turns against her mistress. It it really is a strange dynamic the way the way our minds and our hearts work at times. Yeah. What else? Anything else you want to bring up? <clears throat> Before we go on, yeah. The most tricky thing to me was your comment about Abram failed to be a witness because he did the culturally accepted thing. Yeah. Yeah, and and there again, you know, like I said a couple of weeks ago, just every failure on the part of each person in this scenario, I can identify with, you know. But how many times in our lives, <clears throat> and and I wonder, you know, probably won't even know till we get to heaven. How many times in our lives we just kind of went the way of the culture? You know, it's just it's second nature to us because everybody around us is doing things this way. So this is the way we do things. And we make decisions about relationships and about finances and about jobs and careers and, and just about all kinds of things in our lives. And oftentimes without even thinking about it, we just do what the culture does. 
And when we do that and we don't walk by faith, then we miss this opportunity to be a real shining light of, of what God is like. One thing that stood out to me was that you can come from a godly parent. I mean, I assume here is godly, and you can still just get to be wild as a buck. Yeah. I mean, yeah. kind of scary when you think about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. It's predetermined. <laughs> <coughs> Didn't she have that pride before she found out? I'm sure she did. I'm sure she did, and this became her way to express it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we don't really know anything about Hagar before this uh, this uh, uh, story, and so it's hard for us to, to know, but we know she's an Egyptian. Uh, so presumably, and, and as I said, presumably she was, she was part of this whole interaction between the king of Egypt and, and Abram when he, went, when he went down to Egypt. So either he was, uh, I assume that Hagar was either given to Sarai when she was taken to be uh, uh, the king of Egypt's wife, or she was given to uh, uh, Abram as a reward when he took what he thought was Abram's sister. Uh, so, at any rate, she was. Pro- they probably Abram and Sarai probably acquired her in that whole in that whole ugly situation there in Egypt, and and so I assume that Hagar was, you know, just a typical Egyptian worshiping the Egyptian gods, whatever they were, and uh, an idol worshiper. Now she has lived for some time in the household of Abram and Sarai, but but how much has she seen about their god and understood about their god? We really don't know. And so I assume, at least to this point, and given her reaction, her response here when she, uh, when she conceives a child, uh, I, I'm assuming that she's still got a lot of this Egyptian baggage with her. That she, I really assume at this point she's probably not a believer in the God of Abram. Uh, so, so I think, uh, uh, like Sheila said, I think she, she probably had this element of pride uh, uh, even going into this situation, and then of course this just gives, gives her a, a means or a vehicle by which she can express it. You know? So we all have that pride in us, and it's just looking for things as an opportunity uh, to exalt itself. So that's certainly true. Well, so as we saw last week, in an effort to kind of resolve this problem somehow, uh, Abram. Uh, gives the whole situation over to his wife, which was, of course, a mistake. He should have stepped in there, I think. Personally, I think he should have stepped in there and grabbed the bull by the horns and, and, uh, and, and dealt with this problem himself. But instead, he, he kind of drops it in Sarai's lap. And the, and the reason I think that is a mistake is, is not because Sarai's probably not an intelligent, reasonable woman, but Sarah here is in the middle of this whole struggle. She's wrestling with fear. She's wrestling with the fear of losing her standing with her husband, her position uh, as, his, uh, as his wife. Uh, she's dealing with the, the frustration and the, and, the, and the anguish of not bear, have, being able to bear children herself. She's dealing with all the, the uh, animosity that she's now receiving from Hagar and she's having to cope with all that. She's just got too much on her plate. And, and under those circumstances, Abram just says, well, you can deal with this too. You know, you just deal with her, whatever seems right to you. Well, so she, as we see, deals extreme, apparently quite extremely harshly with Hagar. And what is Hagar's response? She leaves. She packs up her bags and goes. Now, to us in the 21st century, that's not a really big thing. 
you know, uh, people are always packing their bags and moving and, and getting out of difficult situations today. And we live in a culture where you can do that. Okay, but what we have to remember is the things we've talked about already before in setting the context of this of this culture uh, uh, in, in Genesis. What kind of a culture is this? What's the basic fundamental element of this culture? Pardon? Well, she's property. Yes. Okay. She's she's a slave. What? Okay. It's a patriarchal culture. Okay. And and you'll remember what we said is that within a within a patriarchal culture, everybody's identity and place within society is defined by this patriarchal culture and is defined by their relationship to the clan. Okay. So as we've talked about this in the past, we've talked about fathers and and uh, children and husbands and wives and and daughters and sons and all that sort of thing. We've talked about their relationship to the clan, but it's also true on uh, it's also true when it comes to people who are servants or slaves. Their identity is defined by the clan that they're associated with or affiliated with. Okay, so your whole identity and all of your protection and all of your provision within the culture is provided by the clan that you're associated with. Now, we don't have that today. Our, 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 we, the way our culture is structured today, people are able to provide for themselves. We have, uh, we have a, a police system and a governmental system in place that provides for our protection. So, uh, so it's not uncommon at all today, for example, for a young woman to grow up and to leave home and to remain single for a period of time, maybe for many years. Uh, and she's... Uh, she finds a job and she's protected by the society because society has established ways to protect people. But in, but in the culture that we're talking about here in Genesis, that's not true. If you don't have an identification with a clan, you are really vulnerable. Okay? You, re- you have no identity, you have no protection, and you really have no provision. All of your provision is provided for by the clan. So when we understand that, then we begin to realize Hagar's utter desperation in the step that she makes. Because here's a woman. First place, she's a woman. Second place, she's a young woman. Third place, she's pregnant. Fourth, she's an Egyptian. Fifth, she's a slave. And now she has chosen to disassociate herself from that clan, the clan of Abram, to disassociate herself from her clan and just to go independent. And when she does that, she loses all of her identity and she loses all of her protection and she loses all of her provision. And when we see that, then we realize how absolutely desperate this woman is. And we realize, too, as she's out here and she is on the way to Egypt, we know that because she's she. Uh, it says the angel of the Lord found her by this uh, spring on the way on near Shur, which is between Egypt and and Canaan, and it's on the way between the two. So we know she's on her way back to Egypt. That's her that's her mindset. She's going back to Egypt, but but she's out there. She is all alone. She has no protection. She has no provision. She she is with child, and she is of course a woman. This is a woman who has really made herself extremely vulnerable in the culture. Okay. She's just out there on her own. And she has done so 
because she has felt compelled to do that, why? Why would, a, why would this woman make this radical step in her life under these circumstances? Okay, she's being she's being oppressed. She's being afflicted. She's being uh, <clears throat> she's being mistreated by her mistress, and she feels that the only way that she can right her ship, so to speak, is to flee from this oppression that she's under. But the problem is that the oppression, the environment of oppression that she's under is also the environment that provides her the protection and the provision that not only she needs, but that her unborn child needs. And so she has taken this step of rebellion and rejection of authority in her life because to her, that's the way she solves her problem. Now, of course, none of us have ever done that, right? None of us have ever rejected authority and rebelled against authority because we thought, well, we just, you know, uh, the authority in our lives is just creating so many problems, we've just got to do that. Now, now, admittedly, we're talking about slavery here, and we, 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 we look at slavery from a 21st century perspective, okay? And we have to understand that, that when, we, when we put ourselves back in Genesis, we're dealing from a totally different perspective. And though it's very clear as you go through scriptures uh, that, that God is opposed to slavery, it's very clear that he allowed it. We should point out, too, that slavery, uh, slavery as it's characterized in scripture oftentimes, is, is nothing like the slavery that we're familiar with from American history. American history, uh, slavery in American history was a particularly vile and evil form of slavery. And not that any slavery is, is, uh, is good. But my, my point is that God permitted slavery within the context of the social structure. Because that was under the social structure and under the culture, that was how those people could be protected and provided for. Okay? Not that that was God's ideal, but that's the way the society operated. And so, for, for Hagar's benefit and for the benefit of her unborn child, it was better that she be back under Abram's roof, okay, which becomes clear as we go through this passage that God instructs her to go back. Now, eventually, of course, she will leave. And when she does leave, she will leave not only uh, with Abram and Sarai's approval, in fact, they push her out, but also with God's approval because God has a plan which fits into the whole scheme of things. But at this point, what's, what Hagar needs more than anything else is she needs the protection and the provision of her patriarch. And she has rejected that because she thinks that's the only way she can solve her problem. Okay. Well, the question we might ask ourselves is, was there another way she could have solved her problem without fleeing? Yeah. If she had not been disrespectful of Sarai... If she had not had contempt for Sarai, the whole problem wouldn't have developed. But this is just the part of the way things happen when we take things into control in our own hands. They spin out of control. Uh, Abram reacts in a way he shouldn't react. Sarai reacts in a way she shouldn't react. And Hagar reacts in a way she shouldn't react. But, but had she uh, shown the kind of respect 
that she should have shown uh, to Sarai, then it wouldn't have been necessary for her to flee. But she does flee. So here she is. She's out here. She's vulnerable. She's exposed. She's she's in extreme danger and peril. She has no provision. She's out here by herself. She's here uh, in part because of her own rebellion and her own sin and her own disregard for God's uh, ways. So she's... She's out here in this circumstance, and what happens? She meets God. And it's interesting the way it says it here. It says, the angel of the Lord found her. Now, uh, oftentimes in the Scripture, when it refers to the angel of the Lord, it's talking about a, a Christophany or a Theophany. It's talking about a uh, the Lord... Uh, disclosing himself or revealing himself in some kind of either angelic or human form uh, to some individual. So we have a number of these in Scripture and a couple of the most memorable uh, Christophanies in the Old Testament would be, of course, uh, uh, the Lord appearing uh, to Moses uh, on Mount Sinai and interacting with Moses in the form of a Christophany. Another example, of course, would be the angel of the Lord when he appears in the fiery furnace to the three Hebrew children. That's another example of a Christophany. And it is clear that it is the Lord. And here also, it it really is clear. Now, there are some commentators who think that this is uh, simply an angel and not specifically a Christophany here. But I think the passage makes it pretty clear that it is a Christophany, that this really is the Lord appearing in in, in, in a form in which he has... Uh, he has draped or shrouded most of his heavenly glory, and, and he appears to her either as a, either as an angel or in a human form. Uh, and he is described here as the angel of the Lord. So the angel of the Lord, it says, finds her. Now, it, it, this really is pretty remarkable here, because we are dealing here with somebody who is outside of the line of promise. Okay. We've been following a line of promise all the way from you know, Genesis uh, chapter 2. We've been following that line of promise starting with Adam and Eve and on down through the line. And we've been following this line of promise. And we see how well there are all these other branches of humanity that branch off from the line of promise. But, but, but there is this distinct line of promise that we've been pursuing and we've pursued it all the way down through these various men of God uh, all the way down from, from uh, Adam and Eve. But here we have a woman who stands outside of the line of promise. She is an Egyptian. Okay? And she is a woman. Okay? And now we see that she experiences a Christophany. She experiences an encounter with the living God where he makes himself in some limited or, she, or, or, or uh, 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 limited form, makes himself obvious to her, apparent to her, and, he, and she sees her. Now remember, the book of Genesis is written by Moses along with the rest of the Pentateuch. It is written while he's in the wilderness to place into the hands of the children of Israel an understanding of who they are and where they've come from and where they're going in preparation for them entering into the promised land. So when the children of Israel for the first time hear the book of Genesis read or for the first time read for themselves the book of Genesis, where are they? 
They're out in the wilderness. Where have they come from? What were they doing in Egypt? They were slaves. And so here the children of Israel who have just recently encountered all that stuff they encountered at Mount Sinai. And they've seen Moses and they watch Moses as he goes into the tent of meeting and he, and he meets with God face to face. Okay, And so they have this, this view of Moses as this profound spiritual leader who who has this regular encounter with God where he goes in and he meets with God face to face and he comes out and his face is shining and so it has to be shrouded. And now Moses writes down for them this story of the things that happened way back when and he tells them about an Egyptian to whom they have just been slaves, about an Egyptian slave woman who has encountered a Christophany like Moses has encountered. Well, that starts to set this whole story in a totally different context, doesn't it? Then we begin to realize the magnitude of what's happening here. And so this this chapter, which admittedly has been for us somewhat of a difficult chapter because we keep talking about Abram's failure and Sarai's failure and Hagar's failure and we keep thinking about how that relates to us and all our failures because we all fail in the same way and we've been talking about that for two weeks and then suddenly the story just takes this dramatic turn that we have this woman, this Egyptian, this, this, this individual who is outside of the line of promise and who is running from God and is running from from authority and is acting in rebellion and she's out there in the wilderness and she's vulnerable and she's exposed and suddenly she has a Christophany as profound as that of Moses. And so what this story then becomes is this remarkable story about God's grace. It becomes this remarkable story of of God's absolutely unmerited grace that He pours out on people just because He loves them and He wants to bless them and He wants them to experience Him and walk with Him. And just because Hagar is a woman... And just because she is a slave and just because she is an Egyptian does not mean that she is not an object of God's passionate, seeking, finding love. And so here we have this woman out there in the middle of the desert, a spring in the desert. And... And God comes and He appears to her and He reveals Himself to her. And He begins to have a dialogue with her. And the first thing He does is He addresses her. What does He call her? By her name. Calls her by her name. Now what's particularly interesting about that is that there is no other example 
in any ancient Near Eastern literature where a deity addresses a woman by name. Not even in the Old Testament. And so the, the, thing, the thing that comes out here is not only this idea of the grace of God here, but, but that to God, Hagar is this person who has an identity. She has a name. And in spite of all the things about her that we would think, well, she's just this lowly kind of no person, you know, and she's now disassociated herself from the clan, so she even has less identity. All of that is true about her from our perspective, but from God's perspective, He knows her name. And He calls her by name. And He identifies her place. He says, Hagar, Sarai's maid. And he addresses her by name. And then what does he do? Yeah. <laughs> does that remind you of anything? The garden. The garden. <laughs> yeah. It does, doesn't it? Just like the Garden of Eden. Now, why is God asking these questions? Does he not know? Okay, pardon? Yeah, he's making her think. Obviously, he knows the answer. He knows her name. He knows her place. He calls her Sarai's maid. He knows all this stuff. He knows where she's coming from. But she needs to think about it. It's interesting they never get to answer the second question, right? <laughs> they get hung up on the first question, okay? But he asks her, he says, where are you coming from and where are you going? And he's trying to get her to think about what she's done to herself and the predicament that she's in because of her act of rebellion and her refusal to submit. Okay. So he's trying to get her to think about those things. Now, I don't know what all went on in this interaction. You know, oftentimes we assume when we read a story like this that we're getting the whole story. Okay. Well, we may not be getting the whole story. We may only be getting the highlights. Okay. We're only seeing the things that the Holy Spirit through Moses wants us specifically to know for sure about what's going on. So there may have been more interaction that went on between, uh, between the Lord than simply these very brief, succinct uh, sentences that are recorded for us here in Scripture. There may have been more to it, I suspect, that there probably was. But the essence of it is that God quizzed her that God asked her questions in order to get her to think about what she has done. Once he has done that and she has answered and acknowledged that she is fleeing from Sarai and he call, and she, notice she calls her my mistress. My mistress Sarai. I'm fleeing from the presence of my So she's acknowledging that even though she has acted willfully and in rebellion, that that's still her rightful place. That's really where she belongs. And she acknowledges that. Okay. And then, in, in the narrative here, we just move directly on into the other things that God has to say. And this is one of the reasons why I suspect maybe there was more, maybe more happened than, than is recorded here. Because I think that there's obviously some 
obviously something has happened where Sarai, or excuse me, where Hagar is beginning to at least have some change of mind about what she's done and where she's going and where she's headed. Okay, so so then God says to her, He says, "I will greatly multiply your descendants, so that they will be too great to number." And then He goes on and He says, uh, He says further to her, He says, He says, "You are with child, and you will bear a son, and you will call his name Ishmael." Why? Why is he to be called Ishmael? Because he paid heed to her affliction. The name Ishmael means God hears. Okay. And then he begins to describe what this son is going to be like. He's going to be like this wild donkey. Uh, he's going to he's going to be uh, his hand is going to be against all his brothers and his brothers are he's going to be against everybody everybody's going to be against him and and then that last uh, part of the description he's going to live to the east of his brothers or or he's going to be in conflict with his brothers is a bit of of uh, of uh, uh, difficulty there in the translation of the last part of that verse as to exactly how it should be translated <clears throat> but she, so God gives her this description of this son that is to be born to her. So after God has confronted her and gotten her to think about what she's done, where she's going, he then begins to unfold to her this remarkable plan that he has for her life. And we see that he sets before her two things. One, he sets before her the the blessing that is on her own life. And then he sets before her the blessing that will be upon her son's life. Now, he doesn't use the word blessing here, but, he, but when we get to chapter 17, it will specifically refer to Ishmael as being blessed. Okay? So this is for one of the first things we need to understand about this whole thing about Ishmael is Ishmael is not cursed. Ishmael is blessed. And we need to understand that. There's a lot of misunderstanding in the world today, both in the in the Arab world and in the Christian world, about Ishmael and his place in this whole thing. Okay, but very clearly from Scripture, Ishmael stands as a blessed person. Okay, now the question was brought up last week: <clears throat> Why did the Lord allow Hagar to conceive? Given the given the uh, improper way that this whole thing went about, why did the Lord allow Hagar to conceive? Given the verses we've just looked at, why do you think God allowed Hagar to conceive? I think it's still harder to understand. <laughs> so we've muddled it up. Huh? <laughs> okay. Is there anything in that in that passage we've looked at that might give us a clue? Okay, I do think that's part of it. I think that's kind of the the unstated reason, but I think there is a stated reason. What is the stated reason? What is his name? What's his name mean? God hears. God hears. What specifically is he refer- is is 
is he referring to when he says God hears? What is it that God heard? Her affliction. The reason God allowed Hagar to conceive a child is because she was afflicted. It was God's gracious gift to her. It was God's reward, if you will, to her. Because of all that she had experienced, all the affliction that she had experienced in her life, all the difficulty that she had experienced in her life. And the thing that Hagar discovers now is that this this child that she's carrying is not just this kind of random thing that happened just because she and Abram had sex together and it just happens, you know. And so now she's really a cool person because she got pregnant and Sarai couldn't. And instead of now this kind of gloating over her pregnancy... She suddenly realizes that this conception, this pregnancy, is a gift from God that has come to her because God, whom she didn't even know before today, has been watching her all along and has been listening all along and has known all along the affliction and the suffering that she has been encountering. And and because of all of this affliction and all that she has endured, God has graced her with a son. It's an act of God's grace and mercy on her for all that she has endured. And then I think it goes further to the, to the point that, that Hal was alluding to. Is we, we, have to, we have to remember this whole, this whole idea of bearing children and having children. It all, it all goes back to Genesis 2, right? It goes back to the blessing of Genesis 2. And he blessed them and told them, be fruitful and multiply. That's why the psalmist says, children are a gift from the Lord. Okay? And as I've said several times in the last couple of weeks, all children are a gift from the Lord. Children born from rape are a gift from the Lord. Children born from, from adultery and fornication are a gift from the Lord. They are God's merciful gift. They all are. And we have to keep that paramount in our minds or all kinds of evil and distorted things come out of thinking anything other than that. And so Ishmael is a gift from the Lord. And, and, and one of the things that God is doing in, in blessing us and multiplying us is, is He's doing the very thing He started out to do clear back in the garden, which was to raise up for Himself a whole host of people who would glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. (laughs) The Westminster Confession. What is the chief purpose of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that's what God is doing. He is raising up a host of people. And God's intention in giving to Hagar this child, Ishmael, was that He might raise up from the loins of Ishmael a host of people that He might redeem by His grace and by His love and bring to heaven to enjoy Him forever and glorify Him forever. That's what God is about. And, and if we... Absolutely. Absolutely. And if we see Ishmael in any other light, if we see him as cursed or if we see him as some kind of punishment... Then we, then we lose the things that, that the Scripture is clear to us about. Ishmael. 
is that he is a gift to Hagar because of her suffering and that it is God's intention to raise up for himself millions and millions and millions and millions of people who will worship and endure him and enjoy him forever. Okay? Well, so then he goes on and he tells us a little bit about Ishmael. And I've been having a really good time here today because the longer I teach, the more it stays at 10 o'clock. And I realize God is really doing a miracle here because He's given me all the time I want in the world. And then I looked at my watch and I go, it's at 10.23. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to ignore that up there, unfortunately. So at any rate, so then He describes to us what this son is going to be like. And He says in... Uh, uh, in verse 12, it says, He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. Okay. Now, the problem with this verse is it's been, it's been really misunderstood and misused by Christians, uh, uh, primarily by Christians. And, but also this whole idea of who is Ishmael and where does he fit into the whole plan of God has also been really distorted and misused by, uh, by Arabs and particularly uh, by, uh, by many Muslims. Okay? So what we have to do is we need to stop and we kind of need to think about this for a minute. What do we know about the descendants of Ishmael? And what is God saying about Ishmael and what is God saying about his descendants? Well, first of all, I should point out that verse 12 appears to address specifically Ishmael and his immediate descendants. It does not appear to address the descendants of Ishmael 4,000 years removed. Okay? There's no, nothing here about forever or forever now, like we have with the descendants of, of Isaac. Okay? Uh, so, one of the problems that we have is that, <clears throat> is that many... Many Arabs, not all, but many Arabs claim that all Arabs are descendants of Ishmael. Okay? And that's part of their whole theology. And uh, Again, not with all, but with some. It's part of their whole theology. And, uh, and, and they base a lot of their arguments about the promised land and, and, and uh, Palestine and all sorts of things on this assertion that, that Arabs are the descendants of Ishmael. But the question is, who are the Arabs? What makes somebody an Arab? No. No. What makes somebody an Arab is if they speak Arabic. Okay? Somebody's an Arab if they speak Arabic. Okay? And, and initially, Arabic was, was more limited in its scope than it is now, but it is much, more widely, much wider in its scope now because of the Islamic conquests. Okay? When the Muslims set out to conquer the world, they were Arabs. And they extended it. Uh, they extended their conquests clear down into Africa and up into Europe and, and, and uh, all over. So, so you have many different ethnic groups who now speak Arabic. Okay? And we refer to them as Arabs. 
Okay. But the reality is that the Arabs who extend over a, a generally identifiable geographical area embrace many of the descendants of the table of nations that we read about in Genesis chapter 10. Okay. Remember the table of nations? We studied all about those table of nations and we even located where many of those various tribes initially moved and where they took up residence and established themselves. Okay. And now what we think of as the Arabic world, which covers from North Africa clear over, uh, uh, clear over through the Middle East and, and on beyond and up, and up north into Russia and, and south into parts of Africa, uh, that whole area embraces a whole host of ethnic groups, many of those ethnic groups clearly tracing their lineage back before Ishmael. Clear back to the table of nations. Okay? So the assertion or the claim that, that all Arabs are the descendants of Ishmael is just flat out historically wrong. Okay? There are all kinds of Arabs from all kinds of different uh, ancestors that, we could, that if we could trace, we would end up tracing back to the table of nations. The problem is because there's been so much intermarriage uh, between these various tribal groups and because uh, with the exception of the Jews, a few, if any of them, kept any kind of written records of their genealogies uh, past a few generations, uh, <clears throat> 10 or 15 generations or so, there's no way to trace it back. There's no way to know which ones are the descendants of Cain and which ones are the descendants of Ishmael and which ones are the, the descendants of Keturah who was another uh, child of Abram's later in the story. Uh, so there's all these other descendants of other ancestors who get lumped into this whole Arabic thing. Okay? So we need to understand, first of all, that when we're speaking of Arabs, we're not speaking of the descendants of Ishmael. And, and, and that will diffuse another misconception that is often propagated is that the conflict between the Arabs and the Jews of today finds its origin in, in Abram and Sarai's sin. It does not. Okay? The idea that's propagated was, well, Abram and Sarai, they really blew it and they had, uh, they had this son Ishmael and, and he's the father of all the Arabs. And we have this prophecy here that says there's going to be conflict between the descendants of Ishmael and, and, uh, and the children of Abra uh, the descendant of Isaac uh, from Abraham. And, and so it's like God's prophesied this conflict that's always going to exist between the descendants of Ishmael, i.e. the Arabs, and the Jews. And so this conflict that we have today between the Arab and the Jew is inevitable because it's prophesied in Genesis chapter 16. There's just no basis for that. First place, the prophecy doesn't say that. The prophecy says that he is, in fact, going to be fiercely independent and that he's going to be at war with everybody. Not just with the descendants of Isaac, but he's going to be in animosity with everybody and everybody's going to be against him and he's going to live out to the east of his brothers. Okay? And he's going to be fiercely independent. And the significance of that to Hagar as she's hearing this prophecy is she is what? What is she? She's a slave. And now she's hearing that her son 
is going to be this fiercely independent character. He's not going to be a slave anymore. Now, there is a period of time in which he is a slave. He's a slave between the time he's born and when he's 13 years of age. And then, and then God tells Abram to send Hagar and, and, and uh, Ishmael away. And that is the time, that 13-year period of time, is obviously the time that Paul refers to in Galatians chapter 4 when he refers to uh, Ishmael as being uh, a son of slavery. Okay? But there, comes a time, there will come a time in, in Ishmael's life when he will be liberated. He will be sent out. Okay, and he will then be this fiercely independent guy who's just really not going to get along with anybody. Okay, and he's going to live out there like a wild donkey. Okay, that's the gist of the prophecy. That's what God is trying to tell Hagar. It is not a prophecy that there is going to be millenniums long conflict between the Jews and the Arabs. Okay, there's just no historical basis for that and there's no historical ground for that. Okay. So you might ask, well, what is then the basis or the cause of this great conflict between the Arabs and the Jews? Well, there's a lot of factors there, and it's certainly more than we could ever go into today. There's geopolitical issues, there's historical issues, there's all kinds of reasons why this conflict goes on. Okay. But it's not just the Arabs that have been fighting the Jews for thousands of years. A lot of other people have been too. The Persians have been doing it, the Germans have been doing it, the Americans have been doing it. You know, we've all been doing it. Why? Because they are the people of God. And they are the, they are the line of promise. And Satan has been determined that he is going to destroy that promise and interfere with that promise. And so he's been on a campaign to do that. And, and the children of Israel have found themselves at odds with everybody for that reason. Okay. But the primary reason that the Arabs and the Jews don't get along today is because both of them have rejected the Messiah. Both of them have rejected the true seed of Abram. And that's why they don't get along. And when an individual Jew or an individual Arab and an individual Arab embrace the true seed of Abram, the wall of partition is broken down and they find peace together. Okay. Well, uh, we're out of time. Uh, but I don't want to end here. So next week, even though I gave you another study sheet, I want to at least take time. We may go on and get started in chapter 17, but I do want to take time because it's very important we look at Hagar's response to all of this because it is really wonderful. Okay? So next week we'll do that.